And then the rest of us are going to continue to worship through the word today. I, I am hesitant to push the button because it seems crazy to me. Uh, and to be fair, we are a little ahead of schedule, I guess, sort of, right? Thanksgiving is super late this year. Uh, I guess it's delayed like almost a week. And so Christmas season is shortened a little bit. And if you've been like just doing life, I mean, I noticed Christmas music before uh, Halloween. Like, I heard Christmas music, and I saw Christmas stuff up um, in the stores before Halloween even happened. So it's not that far ahead, but it feels weird. I can't believe we're here. We're starting a new series, as Dale mentioned this morning, uh, called Christmas Hope. And just thinking through again what Christmas is about and what it ought to mean to us in our lives and how we ought to maybe shape our lives around the reality of the Christmas season. It's not lost to me a bit this morning that um, we were talking and someone said, uh, you found out what you're having, what are you having? And Emily goes, we're having a boy. And I'm like, that's appropriate. Because <laughs> guess what? That's what Christmas is about. We're having a boy. <laughs> All of us. I'm mean, not talking about Emily. I'm talking about the church. We celebrate Christmas because there's this great longing expectation for the coming season. And so, uh, so we're going to spend the time leading up to Christmas in the first two chapters of the book of Luke. So if you want to be reading and studying and thinking with us through the series, just read the first two chapters of Luke as we get ready for the Christmas season. That's what we're going to be doing as we cover, as we, as we think about Christmas this year. But we are a bit early this week, and so I, I did want to think before we get into it about the holiday season in general, right? I, I think it's funny we say the holiday season and, and people are, you know, have conversations what that means and all this, but it means holy days, that holy days are coming and that we ought to be preparing ourselves for holy days that are coming, right? And so that's what the holy days are, is holy days. And um, this week we're getting ready for Thanksgiving coming up, which is pretty remarkable. We can be thinking about what it means. Now, I've had some conversations with some folks about what the holidays mean already, right? Just in casual conversations, maybe you are too. Some people are really excited about the holidays. Some people are kind of surprised it's here already. Like a a lot of people have seen this year like going, man, what happened? Like it's November. It's almost December. That seems crazy. But here we are, right? That's what's happened. And then there's been a few people who've talked to me and they've said, man, I'm stressed out about the holidays. And I'm like, really? And like, oh, because the business. And I'm like, man, just because life's been hard and our family's kind of, you know, struggling a bit. And I don't ever want to say that stuff to make it like normative that if you're not struggling during the holidays, you're not normal. Or, you're, you know, I mean, like you're missing out because you're not. If you're just one of those people who's like, can't wait, love it, you know, the, uh, the decorations just go everywhere, you know what I'm saying? And, you, don't, you know, you don't have any light bulbs get burnt out in your light strand. God bless you if that's true for you. I always say that's like one of the jokes about the seasons. Like there's these like stress tests that are applied to families like decorating the house with the light bulbs and everything. <laughs> Stresses us out. But even more seriously and more deeply than that is like we, I think, I believe that when we enter into the holidays, it brings to the surface again sometimes relational tensions, some things come up that we got to deal with. And, and maybe you're feeling that way. Maybe you're not. If you're not, praise God for that. But maybe you're thinking. And I want us to think through what the scriptures say about the great Christmas, the holiday, holy day that was coming for the people of God and how, and how that can inform and shape our actual lives with Christ. See, the truth is that holidays are a season of joy. They're a season of hope. And they're a season of a promise fulfilled. And and when we rightly orient ourselves to the holidays, we can then recognize and more rightly, and I hope today, by the grace of God, we can learn to do this, let go of some things and enjoy the season, enjoy the blessing that we're having. 
So with all that in mind, um, I want to start with prayer, and uh, then we're going to pray, and we will we'll look at Luke uh, 1 after we pray. But let's pray together. Uh, Father God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the chance we've had to gather here and proclaim your great goodness. The, the blessing that you've given us, we are blessed, Father, that you have uh, let, made yourself known to us. Not only did you give us life on this earth, Father, but you revealed yourself to us by the power of your Holy Spirit and through your immeasurable grace to us, we get to know you. And so, Father, as we, um, with all of our culture right now, prepare for this great and holy season of Christmas, that you would rightly orient our minds towards you. And then we pray, Father, that today we could be listening to you, learning from you, and then being changed by you, Father. I'm going to ask ahead of time that the things we maybe would hear today, that you would teach to us, we would actually apply to our lives, that we could have a more blessed Christmas and Thanksgiving season. So help us to be faithful to you. Help us to always hold you out as our one and only hope. And we thank you so much for the sacrifice that you made for us, that we can be free from all this burden and sin and stress that we find in this life. May you be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go ahead. So here's the slide. It does seem weak, really, right? Uh, Christmas Hope is the series, Christmas Hope. And we are going to uh, look at Luke 1, 5 through 25 today. I left out the first four uh, verses because they're an introduction of the book, and it's more holistic, so we're not going to cover that. If you brought a Bible, look at Luke 1. And if you didn't, they should be in the end of the and I think it's around 7.15. That was from memory. It might be right. Let me see if it's right. 714, that's pretty close, that's pretty close. Uh, and so, uh, so check that out and get eyes on the scripture for yourself. I do want to mention to you as we get into the Gospel of Luke that if, if, if you don't understand maybe how the Bible's laid out in general, I want to explain it uh, real quickly. There's two major divisions of the Bible, right? The Old Testament and New Testament. And then the first three books of the New Testament, they're called Synoptic Gospels, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those basically record the same overlapping stories from different perspectives. So you have a bit of this, a bit of that, and those three books. But Luke is the one that is most complete as far as Luke set out to, to, to lay out a complete kind of story of Jesus' life. And therefore, he, was, he wasn't trying to, like, Matthew's written to a Jewish audience, and Mark was like the very first gospel recorded from oral tradition. But Luke goes about trying to record for this gentleman, uh, Theophilus, a greater understanding of uh, so they can have confidence in what he's come to know about Jesus. And so the whole story. So we get in here then the birth narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to pick up in verse 5 then in this historical account of the reality of Jesus' coming to earth. Uh, this is what the word says. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. It may say Zacharias in your translation, by the way. Um, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah with his wife Elizabeth, who is also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. I want to stop right there real quick. So just two verses now. But there's an introduction of the characters we're going to be talking about with this narrative. Now, I said we're a bit early in the Christmas season, and we are, but this is like a precursor to the Christmas story in a way. I mean, it's part of it, but it's a precursor to the story, so it fits very well um, with this Thanksgiving week that... There's, um, there's an introduction of the rulers. There's an introduction of our two main characters, Zechariah. And I want you to notice a couple of things. The first is he's, he belongs to the priestly division of Abijah and his wife Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. So I want to remember that Abijah was, the, um, I think, the eighth uh, division of the priests of God that was laid out in the Old Testament, right? And so he was part of the priesthood 
of Israel. That meant that he had temple service obligations to do, and that he was, and those were uh, in, um, an honor to get to do them, right? So you'd be invited in, and they would serve in the temple for, I think, a week um, doing various tasks. We'll talk more about that later. But then even Elizabeth as well was a descendant of Aaron. And you remember Aaron was Moses' helper. When Moses, um, when God said, Moses, I'm gonna send you to lead Israel, he said, how can I do this by myself? And, they, and then God says, well, take Aaron with you, right? And so Aaron becomes the lineage of the priesthood of Israel. And so that basically is to say that both of these folks have a divine calling in their life, you could say, right? They're part of a holy heritage, Zechariah and Elizabeth. In fact, in verse 6, it says, both of them were upright in the sight of the Lord, of the Lord or of God. And so like, not only are they of priestly heritage, because if you've read the Old Testament, it's full of people who, who are in the priestly heritage but aren't necessarily that holy. Right? They just do things uh, that are not pleasing to God. But it says here in verse 6 that they are both upright in the sight of the Lord. And then, this is remarkably, observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. So these are two upright people. They're not just, you know, hey, my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my great-great-great-grandparents were all in the priestly line, but they're actually faithful servants of the Lord. They are um, uh, believing, I would say, and they are faithful in their service before the Lord. And before we kind of turn the page here in the next verse, I want to know, um, well, let's just read it, and then we'll talk about that. Uh, here's verse 7, then. So that's kind of like the introduction of the characters, and they're really good folks. And then look at verse 7. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were well along in years, right? And so they line out a few things. But I have a question as we think about this now. If we, had, if, if we just stop with the introduction of, of um, Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, I would guess if I said, what kind of life do you think they had, you would probably say, man, they're so blessed, they have such a great life. Like, I don't know if you think that that's true or not, but I wonder if you believe that faithful, believing, holy people just kind of have it made, that life is easy for them, that it's all figured out, that they don't have struggles, right? And I know that most of us would say with our minds and our mouths, no, I don't believe that. I know that people struggle no matter what their belief is, right? They still struggle with life, that's life. And yet some part of our heart, some part of our mind would actually look at Zechariah and Elizabeth and say, wow, they've got it made. How blessed are they? They're in the priestly line. Zechariah gets to go serve at the temple. What an honor amongst the nation of Israel. I'm sure for most of their compatriots, they thought, wow, these two are so blessed. Not only blessed to be able to serve, but blessed to have each other. They have this perfect relationship, and everything's great for Zechariah and Elizabeth. I can't help but believe that as people who are honoring the Lord uprightly and blamelessly, they were a blessing to people around them. And the people in their lives probably thought, man, these couples, the best couple in the world. I love hanging out with these two. So we have this introduction, but in the middle of it, then this problem. They had no children. You, there, there's, there's three things said here that we ought to recognize. And the first is they had no children. The second is that Elizabeth was barren. So, you know, it's always one of those things where if, if you're not blessed with children, it's like, well, what's going on there? And then here it says, well, this is the, this is the problem. Is Elizabeth can't have kids. And the third is they were both well along in years, which is a nice way of saying they were old. <laughs> okay, old. You know how old they were? Too old to have kids. That's how old they were. They were too old to have kids. And so as much as people around them probably thought, you have this sense in Zechariah and Elizabeth and in the telling of that part of the story that there was something yet unfulfilled in their lives. 
that there was something yet that they had maybe hoped, maybe thought, maybe believed, and yet not received. And so as much as they were faithful and honoring, we have this kind of problem in their lives. I think it's an error to believe that, um, that people who are following God have it easy. I think that that's an error that we often attribute to these holy people that we see in our lives. But the truth is that like everyone else, there are struggles and there are longings and there are expectations. Maybe, maybe not even expressed, you know? Maybe they wouldn't have even said that there's something that God hadn't given to them. But I think we'll find that it's, it's true. It's something they desired. Look at verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, by the way, this happened repeatedly. There are 24 divisions, and so they would cycle through, cycle through in their service in the temple, right? About a week each. So what is that, like two times a year-ish, depending on the calendar? The calendar's different then than, than it is now for us, but a couple times in our calendar year they would have served. Once his division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, so he, his division's been called, and that means his family's there, and his, uh, his, he's serving as priest. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. So that's a pretty big thing because I think that one of the, 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 the remarkable things I see in this inter, in the beginning of the story of Christmas is that despite the, the lack, or despite this maybe thing in their lives that they kind of always hoped for and didn't receive, they were continuing to serve faithfully. They were continuing to do what, what they were able to do. And, and, it, and I think it positions them rightly before the Lord that they would continue to serve despite whatever may be going on in their own uh, private, I guess you would say, or personal lives and hearts at home. Because you would travel to the temple to do the service. You didn't live there. You would go there for the week. You would leave your home and go to the temple. We'll hear that later as well. And so we have Zechariah then fulfilling his priestly obligation, but also the opportunity that God has given him. He doesn't, he doesn't get kind of bitter and quit. He doesn't, he just, and who would, right? Because it was a great honor. I understand this, but who would? But he's there serving. Now, here's a couple things that I'm going to spend just a moment kind of fleshing out for us, because I found it quite interesting. When you were called into the temple to serve, there was a whole bunch of duties that were done each day of the week, and my understanding is that four times a day there were things done by lot. That means by, by kind of um, drawing, essentially. A lottery. You could call it a lottery, right? But it took some effort to do this. And so you would get up in the morning, you prepare yourself for the first drawing of the morning. And they would draw the first obligations, and that was to get the altar ready for the burnt offerings, and they would do all these things. And then there was a second off, the second lottery of the day, and, and um, there was some more duties ascribed. Then there was the third, and I, I could be an error here, but I'm, this is from memory, but I believe there was a third offering of the day where someone was given the opportunity to, to go to the incense altar. And, um, and then the, the fourth was to get things for, prepared for the next day and lock up the temple at the end of the day, and then go, and it would cycle again, over and again. So when you show up in the morning, you had to prepare yourself um, for each of these drawings, hoping that you would be selected from your group to serve. So it wasn't just enough that you were in the priesthood, you always get to serve. That's not the case at all. You would maybe go for multiple years without being selected to serve. So what did you do if you weren't selected to serve? You would pray around the temple as the priests were selected to serve. And so this is a bit of the thing, but I wanted to mention a bit of the context of what's happening here in Zechariah's life. So he's an old man. He's been faithful in this priestly service. He's been doing this for years, but this is remarkable, and I think we ought to catch it he happens to draw a lot, happens to draw a lot to serve in the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And that particular service was the most desired service to have. Zechariah would have showed up his whole life waiting to be selected for this service or that. And there was, again, you would, go, you would do all these different duties in the temple to get ready for the daily worship and, and the daily sacrifice. But there was one particular service, and it was the incense service, that was considered so holy, it was considered so desired that you could only do it once in your whole life, just one time. Because Israel knew that they, would, they didn't want anyone to kind of do that more than once. So you would tell the story of that time. You were at temple, and you got selected to go and to do the incense offering. No matter who you were in Israel, no matter which priestly tribe you belonged to or clan you belonged to. So I, just, I thought that was really powerful that this isn't just an ordinary moment for Zechariah, but first of all, he's on assignment there at the temple with his family. Secondly, he's drawn by a lot, and not just drawn by a lot to do anything, but drawn by a lot to serve at the incense altar. There's way more we can get into on that as far as what that duty looked like and all those things. But I, I just thought it was worth mentioning that this was no ordinary day already. Zechariah would have been glad to go home and tell Elizabeth, right? Like, you won't believe what happened at Temple this week. <laughs> out of six opportunities, because on the Sabbath, everyone served. But out of six opportunities, uh, this, I got selected to go to the altar and offer an incense to the Lord. Oh, one more thing is probably worth mentioning here is that the incense offering was this idea of, it was at the, at the mercy seat of God. It was on the golden altar, and it was, it was, a, um, it was the recognition that, that uh, sin is being atoned for, that um, this is the, the golden, this is the special offering, which is why it was so coveted and desired. And so we have then this moment now in Zechariah's life where he's already been invited into the most intimate place to celebrate the most beautiful thing, God's forgiveness for his people. And in the middle of this, then we hear the rest of the story. Verse 10. And when the time for the burning of incense came, that would have been later in the day, right? All the assembled worshipers were praying outside. See, that's the rest of the people who didn't get selected by lottery to come into the temple. They were outside. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel, will be, he will bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go up before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow. So, not only is he invited into this incense offering, but in the middle of his offering, God interrupts him to give him this incredible vision for the future. I wonder, can you, can you imagine what this moment is like for Zechariah? I've tried a little bit to lay out the, the uniqueness and the special, the, 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 the crazy day he's having, right? But then you finally, and by the way, let I said to you, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You know what that means? That means that, and this is true, that means that every time a priest got to go in there and do the incense offering, they didn't know what they were doing. 
So much so that the other priests would tell them on the way in, don't forget, don't forget, only touch this thing and do this that way because no one could, they were the only ones that could do it. I think they had one assistant, but they, they were the ones that could touch the altar. And it was a high, holy moment. But you were an amateur. You had not been trained for this. You had never practiced this. You don't get to do it again if you mess it up. And in the middle of this high, holy moment at the altar of God, the mercy seat of Christ, he's standing there, and then in this moment, an angel appears next to him. I wonder, can you imagine what's going on in Zechariah's heart? Can you imagine his, I, I, I mean, he, how much he'd been overstimulated at this point? It's just too much information. And yet here, God chooses to reveal himself at the right-hand side of the mercy seat. This gives us a bit of orientation. I won't get into too much, but the mercy seat is here and the Holy of Holies is behind him and, and, and it's like there's this declaration coming from beside, but he can still see the, the promises of God that the, the holiest place on earth is, is within his eye shot. And then he gets this incredible vision. I can't imagine really what his experience was like that day, how profoundly overwhelming it must have been. But here then, the angel comes from the Lord and he appears, and he gives him a new vision for his life. Remember now, he's old. <laughs> he's faithful, but, and I hope you caught in there, it says in verse 13, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. You see, I said that's why I think that maybe, maybe we couldn't know that he was even worried about these things, but it seems that as he's approaching the temple, the closer he gets to God, the closer he draws, the most intimate things in his heart begin to be revealed to God about what he really, really wants what he really had hoped for. And this was not, uh, I still hope, it was I hoped past tense. I, I used to kind of want this thing. But in the moment in the temple of God, it's revealed in his heart and it says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. We, we know then that he must have been bringing this. You see that everyone's outside worshiping the temple. We're praying outside, it says in verse 10. And so as he's preparing himself to come into the Holy of Holies, here's his opportunity, and he's petitioning. And I, don't, I can't believe, because this is a high sacred moment, he's doing this like, you know, aloud and for his own betterment and everything. It's a, it's a heart prayer for him, something that he had been longing for. So he gets quite a little introduction here from the angel of the Lord. We'll look at what it says in verse 12. When Zechariah saw the angel, he was startled and gripped with fear. <laughs> he probably knew this wasn't a normal experience. Not everyone would get this. But he had no context for how to deal with it, what to do. The angel says a few things. Don't be afraid, the first thing. Your prayer has been answered. Here's another thing the angel says. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. See, it doesn't say that she might. It's a possibility. It could happen. Maybe someday if you hope and pray. It's like, no, Elizabeth is going to have a kid. Not only that, but you're to name this son John. Now, that's the introduction of, of basically what's going to change in Zachariah's life. You're going to have a son. I wonder, um, this is the kind of the question that the whole thing begs, as I think about it from Zechariah and Elizabeth's perspective. Um, have, you, have you ever believed that you've missed your chance? Have you ever believed that it's, the opportunity is gone for something that you believe is a good and God-honoring desire in your life? Do you ever think the, the, chance, the opportunity is past? See, this is not what Christmas is about. It's not about the things that are not got, we've not gotten right or we've, 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 we've missed, but it's about the things that are yet to come. It's Christmas hope for us. 
Well, not only does he say you're going to have a son, but he lays out all these, these attributes of John, and they're quite remarkable. First of all, it says, he will be a joy and a delight to you, which is kind of true when kids are little, but not always when they get bigger, right? There were times in my parents' life I probably was not a joy and delight to them. I'm just saying, right? Uh, it happens. Uh, we are people, and, and we, are, we are not perfect. But it says here that John will be a joy and delight to you. Now, I could think in some way as a, as a, a waiting father his whole life, of course he's going to be um, a joy and delight to me. He's a son. I can't believe it's going to happen. And yet, it's going to truly be a manifestation of God's grace uh, in, in Zechariah's life. Second, um, many will rejoice because of his birth. So not just you being excited about having a kid, but a bunch of people are going to be so excited because John was born. They're going to say to one another, I'm so glad John was born. Do you know that John guy? I'm so glad he was born. John makes life better for us. This is part of the confession, the testimony of John's life, that he would be a blessing to the people, that, so much so that they would all give thanks for his birth. Um, by the way, it's a great opportunity in our own lives to celebrate other people's being born. If someone's a blessing to you, I know we do birthdays, right? But what an opportunity to just affirm and praise God for the gift that he has given you in their life, in their birth. Many will rejoice because of his birth because he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And I can't even begin to define what that means to be great in the sight of the Lord, right? Because the Lord's pretty great. And to be great in his sight means something. 15, he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And I believe that means, let's see, even from birth. I, think, I believe it means, yeah, from his mother's womb. So like, like and we're going to hear that story later in, in the first two chapters of, of Luke. But um, he's spirit-filled in utero. That means before John has sucked wind, he has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. The Spirit of God from birth in John. That's remarkable. Zechariah would have a context for what it would mean to have the Spirit of God resting upon you. He would have heard the stories about what it meant for the Spirit of God to rest upon the leaders of Israel and to hear that the Holy Spirit would rest upon his son while he was still in his wife's stomach would be an amazing revelation while yet in the womb. But there's a promise of God. He's going to, by the way, that first part of that line looks like instructive, doesn't it? He is never to take wine or ferment. Like, you're going to be responsible for this dude, so he's not ever going to drink. So while he's under your care, he's not going to drink. But he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. 16, many people of Israel will be brought back to the Lord their God by John, right? That's implied there. Many will be brought back to the Lord their God. So they're going to, remember his message was? Repent. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Like John was a truth teller, and he was inviting people to change their lives and recommit their lives to the God who had made them and led them forever, Israel. And so we have then um, this truth that many are going to do it. Many are going to respond to John in 17. And he will go on, listen to the word, before the Lord, before the Lord. So there's someone coming after him. That's why we're kind of leaning into Christmas here. In the spirit and power of Elijah, he's going to go before the Lord. In the spirit and power of Elijah, and we're going to spend just a minute talking about this profound uh, model of ministry that's given to John in his life. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness. I mean, the last part here is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
I, I think it's remarkable in the middle of this kind of great and grandiose proclamation of who John's going to be, that he says that one of the results of John's ministry is he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And I wonder, what would it be in Israel that the, you know, he's so excited. Uh, I mean, Zechariah's been praying for this moment that he could be a father, and he'd be so excited. And, and then in that moment to have said, but your son is going to have a ministry that, like Elijah's, that turns the hearts of fathers to their kids. This is part of the ministry he's been given. As a matter of fact, when I began to look into this, this is recorded in Micah 4, 6, or no, Malachi 4, 6. It's the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last line of the last book of the Old Testament here that's being said about John, that he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. That somehow there was a tendency, there had become a tendency for this not to be the case. I, I, I thought of a couple of things when I was thinking about this. What would be unique about turning the hearts of fathers toward their children. The first, and I mentioned it a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to hit it again that much, but as parents and, and fathers, but parents, mothers and fathers both, we have an obligation to teach our kids about the Lord, that we, we, we have this opportunity and that, that our heart should be that they would know God. That would be our heart for our kids, that they would come to know him, that they wouldn't take like a false god. They wouldn't, they wouldn't chase false gods. That part of our, our obligation or opportunity that we have it, it, and, and we see it here in John's own t uh, ministry, is to teach our kids again about God and to not outsource that to somebody else. As a matter of fact, there was a great returning of fathers' hearts to their kids every time Israel drew near to God. This would be a revel that, that yes, I believe it, and I want my kids to believe this too. I want my kids to know truth. <clears throat> but there's a bit more here, right? There could be like... Um, and now I'm thinking, I'm trying to turning here from the text a bit and thinking about the holiday season we're coming into. And what would it mean in our holiday gatherings if the hearts of fathers and mothers were inclined toward their children? How would the meal look different if instead of all the stuff we've been caught up in and maybe all the hurts and all the, all the um, uh, brokenness that we've maybe gone through, and I get it, man. It's like there's many things. That, but what if, what if God were to do a work at the Thanksgiving table or the Christmas gathering that would reorient our hearts toward him and reorient our hearts toward one another? That a father would just be pleased to be at the table with his kids. They would just desire the, the, that they would come to know Christ, that they would come to know God, and, and not in like a, you know, a way that fathers many times do it, like, you're going to believe, I'll tell you that much, you know, if I, no, but in this like heart-wrenching way that we remember the great ministry that was given to what? Prepare the way for the Lord. Like, I'm just thinking, we know this intrinsically, God uses uh, God softens our hearts to prepare the way for him. He doesn't use hard-hearted people. He doesn't prepare us. He doesn't stiffen our hearts before he comes in. He makes them all gooey and, and if it's uncomfortable. And we're like, oh, what are you doing? And then God's like, and now you're ready for my blessing. Soft-hearted people around a table can change your holiday. Just a soft-heartedness toward one another, preparing the way of the Lord. By the way, in, in Malachi, it says, that he will prepare the hearts of the fathers for the children and the hearts of the children toward their father. So I'm not just saying, you know, it's just the big people's responsibility. Maybe you're at the kid table, right? 
Maybe you've gotten hard-hearted towards your parents. Maybe you just, uh, it's never going to, it's, it's, it's over. They, uh, and this stuff, right? No. What, what if God were to soften our hearts toward our parents? We could sit on a table and just go, man, it's not perfect, but I'm so blessed. It's more than I deserved. And believe again, Christmas hope, that God is doing something when we soften our hearts, when we let him soften our hearts toward those he knit us together with. See, that it's all mixed in here, this blessing. He's going to soften the hearts, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's the first thing there. And I would say, fair enough, children to their parents, right? So let that set with you. Because too often we go, well, why don't they do something to make it better? But why don't we? Why don't we be the soft-hearted one? Why don't we do that? Why don't, why don't we choose to believe God enough to risk those kind of relationships, leaning into one another, taking the chance again? Here's the second part then, and it's tied right in there, and the disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness. Part of his ministry and the spirit and power of Elijah is going to be to turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness. Of righteousness. And I thought that was a really funny thing because, um, not funny, but an interesting way to t- turn a phrase there because I'm not sure that we believe enough that there is wisdom and, and turning from disobedience to righteousness. Like his, his proclamation was, repent. <laughs> the kingdom is near, right? You've been disobedient. Stop being disobedient and obey. I'll, I'll tell you this, church. One of the convictions I've had of late, for, as God would have it, is to preach the whole counsel of the word of God. And I keep asking God, well, what does that mean, the whole counsel of the word of God? But I think it means that at times we say hard things to people. This is not gonna go well for you if you continue to do these things. It's, it's, it's one thing to have mercy, and we do have mercy with people, and, and ourselves, we have mercy. And yet, when we see repeated patterns that end in brokenness, it's, it's part of our holy obligation. And I think John was one. You know, remember he said, you voodoo, you're brood of vipers. Like, who called you out here to be repent? You know, like, he's like, you, your, your life has got sin in it. And even though that's true, you can repent and believe this good news, making way the path of the Lord, making, making the path straight. See, there's this idea that the whole counsel is to proclaim that, that the disobedient should start to obey Christ, that righteousness is worth having, that there's wisdom in righteousness and foolishness in disobedience, and just to say those things directly. These are the ministries given in the spirit and power of Elijah. Um, I was thinking, I did not look this up whenever I was prepping, but I was thinking about this too. I'm pretty sure that um, Jesus later quotes this, and he says, uh, Elijah has come, right? John the Baptist is beheaded later. You know the story. And, uh, and, and it's one of those moments in Jesus' own ministry and life which is a turning point for him when he hears that John the Baptist has been beheaded. The herald had been silenced. And Jesus' ministry began in earnest, it seems. So that's the revelation. This whole impossible, incredible new vision for Zechariah's life. I want to remind you where we are now. It sounds so fantastical, but we're still standing in the temple at the altar. We haven't moved. This has all just been one conversation from the angel of the Lord. And it's like, okay, whole bunch of good information here. Lots of stuff that I need to take in right now, you know. But what does this mean? What does this mean? We haven't moved. We haven't taken a step from this moment. And then we have then what? In verse 18, Zechariah speaks. And he says this to the angel. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And so Zechariah's response in the moment of this holy revelation, in the moment of this incredible vision, in the moment of this fulfillment 
a, a promise of a fulfillment of a prayer of his heart says, how can this be? How can I be sure you're going to do what you say you're going to do? I would call this the impossible response. Impossible. That's not possible. It's almost like he's saying, don't toy with me here. This is not a joke for me, angel of the Lord. I'm serious. He says again, he reiterates the problems with this theory. Have you forgotten? I'm old and my wife is old. It doesn't say that, does it? It says she's well advanced in years because you don't call your wife old even when you're staying in the temple before the Lord. You couch those words, right? She's well along, you see. He's saying, I'm not sure it's possible. I have a question. What do you think of Zechariah's response? Is this a response of a faithful person? See, it would, be, it would be easy to kind of bag on, Jer- on Zechariah and say, well, how could he say that? I mean, he's having this incredible day. He's been selected. He's standing there, and here's the angel of the Lord giving a revelation about his life, and all he can say, you know, why couldn't he say something like, awesome, let's do it? <laughs> because he's human, and I, I just love the humanness of Zechariah's response, that he stands there even before the Lord, and he says, I don't get how this is going to happen. I don't see this. I don't see the opportunity. Maybe if you'd have done this a few years ago, maybe. But now, I'm not sure. I love the humanity of his response. Is it faithful? He doesn't say it won't happen. He just asks questions. How? This is the most intimate prayer. How would this come to pass? So then, I love this too. And this is, by the way, always my, one of my favorite things is God's never afraid to answer questions. Like, you know, often I, I, one of my laments in the church is like, don't ask questions. I, I was told that as a young boy, and it always stuck with me. It's like, why? I want to know. Like, I want to understand. God has never, never says, stop asking me questions. I've never read a place in the Bible, show it to me if you can, where God says, stop questioning me, right? He's come back in some ways that people maybe didn't want to answer anymore, you know? But, uh, but he's never rebuked people for asking questions. And here, Zechariah asks a question, and the angel answers the question. Look in verse 19. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. So he lays out a few things here. First, he identifies himself. He self-identifies. I am Gabriel. He gives himself a name. Um, This is a big deal because Gabriel, to my understanding, is mentioned four times by name in the Bible, twice in the book of Daniel and twice in the Gospel of Luke here. And so he was with Daniel um, whenever they were interpreting dreams, Gabriel came to interpret the dream, the visions, I believe. And that is in um, First Chronicles, I want to say. And then here with Zechariah, he's in the temple, and he's like, I'm Gabriel. And then it's coming up, we'll hear it later in the, se- in the series, he does this, he, uh, he's identified before Mary, Gabriel. Comes and reveals himself to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so, um, and so he identifies, he says, I'm Gabriel. That's who I am, in case you want, want some proof of my ability to, Second thing he says is, I stand in the presence of God. (laughs) Like, this is no ordinary message. I come from God's own presence. I think that the the understanding is that Gabriel was at the left hand of God. And so he comes from God's right right next to him, directly into Zechariah's life to give revelation. And this is part of his assurance to Zechariah, is that I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. By the way, look, I stand presently, present in the presence of God. Not that I used to, and I could sometimes, but I am standing in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you good news. And so this is the first revelation we have, that there's good news coming for not just Zechariah, but for Israel, and not just Israel, but the entire world. That this is good news. 
that it's a gift to him. And so he lays those things out and he says, here's three reasons. I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and this is good news for you. Now verse 20, some implications then for Zechariah's question. Like I said, you can ask questions, but there might be some results. Here they go. Verse 20, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Why? The question's answered. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. So for Zechariah now, he gets the answer. Like, how can I have confidence in this? Well, because I say, and I'm coming from, I'm Gabriel, I'm right with God, and it's going to happen. Um, but you're not going to be able to speak about this. Okay. And then he, he says, because you didn't believe what I said when I said it. And now you're going you're gonna to not be able to speak until the time comes. So three things, again, are revealed here. You will be silent, right? You will not be able to speak, and this will come to pass. I just want to, again, walking through the shoes of Zechariah for a moment, he has this revelation about his future life. God told him what's going to happen. And now he believes it. You would assume at this point, okay, I'm going to start believing this. And maybe not yet. Maybe you're going, nah, Zechariah might still be a skeptic. Maybe this is not going to happen. Maybe God's got this wrong or whatever. But he can't talk about it. He can't talk about it. So he's going to go out of the Holy of Holies, or out of the, uh, uh, the um, area near the Holy of Holies, and not be able to tell the other priests what even happened. All of this he can't share. He can't articulate it. We'll press on and come back to, to that experience, but that's remarkable to me that he's not going to be able to share the words until they come true at the proper time. Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Well, he had a meeting. <laughs> he got tied up in there. It got complicated, right? When he came out, he couldn't speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple because he kept making signs to them but remain unable to speak. So here's Zechariah. He's trying to do this. Now, you try to, with your hands, do like a pantomime of what just happened in the temple if you're Zechariah. What are you doing? You're doing this, like, thing, and, and they're going, hey, no, something happened. Use your words, brother. Use your words. But he's not. Do you feel it? He can't. The most incredible experience of his life, being selected to go into the temple, being there with God, being, having a messenger from God come directly to him and say the incredible things going to happen, and he can't tell a soul about it. He can't say a word. Verse 23, when his time of service was complete, he returned home. And after this, look at what the word says, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. You know what that means? God kept his promise. And Zechariah can't speak. I just want you to think about that experience of, of knowing for Zechariah what had been said would come true was now coming true, and he can't even go, yeah, God said this would happen. Elizabeth, can you believe it? What would the experience, by the way, some of you wives might think, five months of silence with my husband during pregnancy would be a great thing, maybe, I don't know. But what a remarkable thing that he witnesses this and he can't talk about it. He just sees God's blessing. He sees it unfolding. He sees the things coming true. And he knew back there it was going to happen because God said so. But he's not been able to talk about it. And he just gets to watch it. How much, how much heart, like, um, pent up, how much is, is he internally just overjoyed and yet completely restricted. Do you see? Like, Christmas is a season of waiting. Do you see? He's just waiting for the moment. He can let it out. He can speak what he knew the whole time to be true now. What an incredible experience. 
I wonder, though, was it punishment for Zechariah? See, we can read that. We can say, well, he is disobedient. He, I mean, he didn't believe, and therefore he's punished. Now you can't speak. And this, oh, it's, it's such a... Maybe, but imagine what it would be like to have God had made you a promise in the most quiet, heart-rending place of your life and then watch it happen and not be able to talk to anybody but God about it. You see, because there's something about verbal, being limited in verbal speech, it means you can't talk to other people, but the Lord knows. There's still a conversation happening. I can't believe this. I can't believe you're doing this for me. I wonder if it was punitive or if it was worship-filled that God's desire would be that Zechariah's heart would be so turned to him and so overjoyed with him and so blown away by him that he couldn't help but to just, just be uh, expectantly waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. Five months. Listen to Elizabeth. This is the last verse. Listen to her own testimony. I love this. Elizabeth, by the way, doesn't know what's happened. She just knows her husband came home from the temple and now she's preggers. That's what she knows. <laughs> Listen to what she says. The Lord has done this for me. In these days, the Lord has shown me his favor and taken away my disgrace. Oh, come on, amongst the people. The Lord has done this. I don't know why my husband ain't talking to me, <laughs> but the Lord has done that too. <laughs> the Lord has done this, giving me child. And listen to Elizabeth's words. Taken away my disgrace. She says he's done this. He's shown favor and has removed disgrace. I wonder, have you ever felt disgraced before other people? I think it's an interesting word to say. We're talking about Thanksgiving and table, and what we say before we eat, we say grace. But have we been disgraced? Has there been um, things in our lives that we are judged for? Have there been ways that we feel like others look down upon us? Or maybe we look down upon ourselves? Have we been disgraced in this way? Elizabeth says, he has taken away my disgrace amongst the people. Wow. I've always believed I was blessed, but now they know I'm blessed. Every accuser's mouth will be silenced. Everyone who had mocked or ridiculed will be put to shame. I am being restored in God's favor. Do you believe that God can change disgraceful situations in your life? Do you believe, like Elizabeth, that God can do something so incredible that it would change the way you thought about yourself and the way others saw you and the way you saw others and that all the equations, all the rational equations would be reset in your life? That's what Elizabeth experiences here. That's the reality of what she goes through. And in this place, wow, how different are the holy days for her? How different is the time around the table for her? I want to... John is a forerunner to Jesus. That with all these things are coming true and these blessings in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, they're just a taste, just a flavor of the fullness that we have in Jesus Christ. And church, listen to me. If no one else believes that Jesus can change the hearts and minds and, and, and circumstances of people, we ought to be the ones who believe it. As we approach the holidays, we ought not to fret. We ought not to be fearful. We ought to be soft-hearted and know that if anyone can change this, Jesus can. And change me first. Change me first. What area of your life do you need the disgrace to be removed? What part of your 
heart, you need to return to the Lord, to God. So there's one final thing I see in here. It says that John will turn the hearts of children toward their father. Yes, that's true on our kitchen tables, our dining room tables, our gatherings. We're going to turn maybe soft-hearted to each other. But here's the truth, is that there's a heavenly father who loves us intimately. And the same idea is that we would turn our hearts back to our own father, our heavenly father. There's an overarching narrative amongst, uh, uh, beyond our families that we could, in this season, return our hearts to Christ himself, that we can come again to his table and eat, that we can recognize again the goodness that he has for us and the restoration and the removal of disgrace and the hope that we have. This is what the season is for. As we approach it together, I would encourage you to be mindful of these things and to allow God to be working. Let's not be hard-hearted and restricting. And I'm saying as much to myself as anybody. So don't feel like I'm preaching at you. I'm preaching with you. How are you going to celebrate the holidays this year? What will you come to the table with? Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we've been given to know you intimately and to be invited to your table, our, our perfect Father. And yet you placed us in families and situations that sometimes are, are great joys and great blessings and sometimes are very difficult. And Lord, sometimes are our own fault that we have created things that, are, that have become very unhealthy. And so, Father, I pray that as we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, this Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, that we would be constantly turning our hearts back towards you and that we would constantly be willing um, to be soft-hearted and to allow you to work in our lives and just to be responsive to your good news for us. I pray, Father, for uh, friends who maybe think that, well, it's too late, it's back there. Father, you are the God of the present and the future, and there's always hope in you. I thank you so much for even those places in my life where I have a tendency to believe that, well, that ship has sailed, that thing is done, and yet you know, and I know, I know, and we know, that those of us who are here, our hearts near to you at your mercy seat, that there are things that, that are yet undone in our lives. There are expectations that are yet unfulfilled in our lives. And Father, we don't want false hope, but we want hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so would you help us to rightly position ourselves near you, that we'd have our hope fulfilled in Jesus, that we would have our hearts healed in Jesus, that we could let go of hurt or of anger or of, or of, or of fear and, and just believe you and trust you and be transformed because of it. May you be glorified. We thank you so much. I pray, Father, for those who maybe don't know you, that your Holy Spirit would condescend and, and cause us to know you, and that for those of us who know you, that we would know you all the more, that we would become nearer to you in this time of holiness, this season of celebration. May you be glorified. We thank you so much for the goodness of your gospel, the coming of John, then the coming of Jesus, and then uh, our, our lives in you. May you be glorified as we celebrate. In Jesus' name. Amen.